Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your love for us, and I want to thank you for my brothers and sisters here in the room and those who are at home uh, watching. I just want to pray that indeed you would flood us afresh with your presence and spirit and equip us. And as Chantal said, if there are some of us for whom the, um, the, the fires of our faith are growing dim, Lord, would you reignite it in our souls and draw us into a deeper intimacy with you? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you remind us of our core identity as, as princes and princesses of a king? who are loved and deeply loved and help us to learn how to live out your mission. God, we want to appeal to you today for our province and we think about the fires that continue to burn in this, uh, in this place and we want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would protect the firefighters. No more deaths, O oh Lord. And we want to pray, Jesus, that you would change the winds, bring some rain, extinguish the fire, protect the homes. And we pray for our prime minister and the brokenness in his marriage relationship. Oh, God, would you reach down and touch him? And would you touch Sophie? Would you be with them and would you bring them comfort and strength and courage and grace? We ask, Lord, that you would do something miraculous in them. We ask that in their pain, you might draw them to yourself, to some God consciousness in their souls. We ask that you protect their children and help the church of Jesus Christ to be the people that pray for their leaders, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, we are better than that. Help us, Lord, to be people that pray for our leaders, someone to take for that couple that you love deeply and you long to bring them into your embrace. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so good to be with you. Uh, happy long weekend. Happy middle of summer. Happy August. Whatever's meaningful for you at the moment. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, if you're a visitor, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in the book of Colossians, and we continue through uh, our journey. We're going to finish chapter two today. Actually, next Sunday, we're going to have a bit of a break from Colossians, and we're going to have a mission Sunday, and we're going to be uh, beaming Renata Ham in uh, from afar. Uh, she's not here with us, but we're going to be hearing for her, from her on video. She's going to be bringing a message and an update. And then we'll be jumping back into Colossians uh, as we see out uh, the summer uh, through to um, Labor Day. And then on the day after, the Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to start a brand new series for the fall. And it's going to be a five-week series called Five Big Questions. And we're going to look at some of the biggest questions that people struggle with in terms of belief and acceptability of the Christian faith. Things like, why does God allow suffering? And our science and faith... Um, compatible, and did, was Jesus really resurrected? Those kind of things. We're going to dive into some of those big questions for uh, our own nourishment, but also to help us to, uh, to witness to others uh, and equip us. Uh, this morning then, before I get into Colossians, I've got some really exciting news for you. Uh, some of you will have already heard, although many of us will not, but um, a lot of us know Robbie and Bitsy Jeffrey um, from our church. Well, they had their baby. 
Are we here? Uh, Robbie texted me this morning. Hey, Robbie. Hey, Bitsy. They told me they were going to be online. Um, Alina Marie Jeffrey was born last Sunday on July 30th, nine and a half pounds. Well done, Bitsy. <laughs> you guys are awesome. We want you to know we, lo- we love you deeply. We pray for you. We are delighted uh, for the birth of Alina. Wonderful news. Um, one other thing, too, before we, um, before we dive into the, the message today, uh, a few weeks ago, our Board of Elders uh, launched a survey for our youth ministry and young adult ministry. We want to sort of try to answer the question, are we, are we equipping our young people as best as we can? Are we discipling them as best as, they, as we can? Are there some things we could be doing differently? Um, if you haven't, if you fall into the category of being a youth, a young adult, or a parent, and haven't yet filled out that survey, uh, please, please, please fill it out because it's actually really, really helpful for us uh, to hear from you. We want to hear the voice of our young people. You get to speak into uh, the church that you belong to. So uh, please fill out that survey. A couple of really easy ways to do it. Go to our website. If you just scroll down just a little bit, there's a couple of links right there to the survey. They won't, the survey won't take you long. There's a parents one and one for youth and young adults, just slightly different wording and, and the way we present the questions. Um, or if you have the, have the news bulletin, um, there's a, a couple of QR codes. It's if, if it's easy for you to just scan that with your phone and fill it out on your phone, you can do that too. So we'd love to hear from you. Please uh, take a few minutes to do that. Thank you. The Apostle Paul was many things. He was a young man who had grown up under Judaism, who had been tutored at the feet of a famous and well-respected rabbi called Gamaliel. He excelled in his learning, he was promising in his potential, and he was zealous in his religious commitment. But Paul experienced one of those fulcrum moments in life where everything changes. The Apostle Paul was on the road to the Syrian capital of Damascus when he, vis- he was visited by and encountered the risen but not yet ex- ascended Jesus Christ. And um, he had been on his way. Why was he going to Damascus? Well, he was on his way to persecute the tiny group of Jesus followers, hoping to stamp out this messianic little sect that threatened the equilibrium of the faith of his fathers. The Apostle Paul was honest in what he was trying to do to preserve the delicate balance on the religious landscape of first century Palestine and punish the enemies of God. Coming face to face with the risen Jesus, however, changed everything for Paul. His world was turned upside down. Everything he knew, everything that was concrete, everything that was familiar was being challenged and redefined and needed to be forever altered in his mind. This would have been a really, really unsettling thing for Paul and a glorious thing. The zeal that Paul had for the faith of his fathers then translated over into this new religious expression called the way. This small sect of believers who declared that Jesus of Nazareth was actually Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the one they'd been looking for, the one that had been prophesied for so long. That's who they believed Jesus of Nazareth to be. But he was even more than their Messiah. He was God himself incarnate in human flesh. And so the zeal that Paul had in his early days in Judaism got transferred to the way, and Paul therefore became the most famous missionary of the early church, 
taking the message out from Jerusalem and planting churches all over the known world, leaving leaders behind as he went on to other communities. Being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write letters to those churches. And because they were inspired, they became God's word as we know in the New Testament. He stood before governors and kings. He suffered and toiled and struggled and worked and encouraged and spent nights in prison. By God's power, he performed miracles. He saw the finger of God in people's lives and in his own life. He raised up new leaders such as Timothy and then eventually died for his faith. And tradition says that he was beheaded in the city of Rome under the fierce persecution of Emperor Nero. This Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, um, one of the things that he said, not in the letter that we're reading to the Colossians, but another one he wrote to another church community in the city of Corinth, in verse 4 he said this, I have become a father to them through the gospel. Paul understood himself to have this fatherly, patriarchal role over the fledgling church. He loved them and wanted to encourage them. Now, writing the letter of 1 Corinthians was probably a hard thing for Paul to do because it was a messed up church. It had a lot of questionable things going on. It had a lot of tough challenges, and there were a lot of things happening that caused Paul to have to be harsh in certain ways. So his statement in verse 4 about becoming a father to you was his way of saying, although I have to tell you off, I want you to know that I love you, and I love you deeply, and I want you to imitate my faith. Although, as we've already said, as we've been journeying through Colossians, that Paul actually didn't plant the church in Colossae, but it was Epaphras who, who likely did that. There is no doubt, however, that Paul had a heart for these people as well. And I think he felt deeply about the church in general. He was committed to its mission. He was zealous for Jesus. He loved the people of God, and it comes through in his letters. And so when we reach verse 16 of chapter 2 that we're going to read in just a moment, Paul is appealing to the Colossian Christians kind of like a father might appeal to his children. He says to them, son, don't let anyone tell you any differently. Daughter, know who you are and know what you believe and don't let anyone condemn you for it. Son, don't let anyone pressure you into doing this or that or the other. Paul had this fatherly affirmation, this fatherly love for um, the Colossians. So last week when we were together, we discussed a little bit about uh, the nature of what's called the Colossian heresy. That is, the false teaching that had sort of uh, gotten under the skin of Colossae and was being, being promoted in the church. And I talked to you about how it seemed to have a, a strong Jewish element, but also likely a pagan element to it as well. And we're trying to sort of piece it together. Scholars try to piece it together because it's not super clear. And it was likely that the Colossians were being tempted into, or in some cases were perhaps already practicing a certain level of syncretism. And syncretism is the joining together of two or more different uh, belief systems uh, and, and living those out. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you can't do that. It's Jesus only. And that's what Colossians is all about. And that passage led us into that amazing truth where Paul says, the record against you has been wiped clean. 
And, I have, and Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. And so then Paul goes on in our passage. Remember, I said I'm going to do sort of a part one, part two. In the passage we're about to read, and he goes on and he sort of continues what he's saying and he unpacks a little bit more about some of the things that were going on. So um, let's read it together. Uh, Colossians 2, we're going to read from 16 um, to 23. So we're going to finish chapter 2 today. This is what it says. Therefore... Do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All of these regulations refer to things that will perish with use. They're simply human commands and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. Amen. God's word to us today. So, the passage begins with the word, therefore. When you see the word, therefore, you know that it's connected to what's just been said. So, blah, 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 therefore. Right? And then what he's about to say, what Paul is about to unpack obviously then is related to what has just been said. What's going to happen with the therefore is that um, uh, Paul's going to say this is what's happening, and then um, the Jewish infiltration of the church is going to load you down with things that are part of the old covenant. He's going to say, therefore, because these things that I've said, do this, do this, do this, or don't do this, don't do that, don't do uh, the other. So what's just been said includes the affirmation that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. Therefore, because of that truth, therefore, listen to what I'm about to say. What's just been said includes the affirmation that the believer has a union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, don't do this, 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 and this, or do do this, 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 and this. What's just been said includes the affirmation that God has erased The record that stood against us, he nailed it to the cross and he disarmed the powers and authorities. Therefore, this, this, and this. So because of all these incredible truths about Jesus and about our salvation and about our forgiveness, he's able to say, therefore, because of that stuff, don't let anyone condemn you in matters of food, drink, observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. What he's saying is don't allow this false teaching to lure you into doing things that were part of the old covenant. Don't let happen here what was happening in Galatia. You remember we talked about that briefly last week? Then in Galatia, the Judaizers had come in and they taught the Galatian people, Jesus is fine, but you also need to keep the law and do this and do this and do this. And Paul writes to them and says, no, don't listen to that stuff. That's the old covenant. That's past. So I think to the Colossians, he's saying, don't let that happen here either. 
Regulations about food and drink, what we can eat, what we can't, what we should eat, what we shouldn't, and keeping certain festivals and Sabbath requirements were all part of the law. They, they had a purpose, and they weren't just part of the law, but they were also part of just Jewish practice as well. And they played a role in the life of the community of Israel. And we might look at that and say, well, is there anything really wrong with that stuff? I mean, there's nothing really sinful necessarily about a whole bunch of those things. I mean, think about the idea of the Sabbath. Isn't that just a, a rich and wise thing to do? Many Christians keep the Sabbath. When, um, when, when the, the impact of Christianity began to get further and further dismantled in Western society, one of the things the church were upset about was the fact that people started to trade on Sundays, right? There's a lot of, like, we shouldn't open stores on Sundays. It needs to be a day of rest. And there was a lot of wisdom in that. Well, of course, the, we've continued to, our society is, continues to be dismantled. But there was something about the Christian church that said, actually, Sabbath is good. And many of us keep it, and, and, and there's lots of voices that call us to do so. It's a way of honoring like a healthy rhythm in life. And, and, and it, quite frankly, it's just a good idea. And it's not only a requirement of the law, it's actually rooted in creation, right? God worked for six days. He created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. There's something about rhythm that's important. It's, it's wise. We would all say... We would all say and not just Christians, but lots of people in society would say it's really good to have a healthy work-life balance, right? A lot of organizations are actually changing the practices of way, the way they hire and some of their personnel um, uh, sort of rules and details and, and so on since COVID. They're starting to say, actually, it wasn't healthy. One of the things COVID has taught us is that we need to strike a better healthy balance for our staff. Like, there's a lot of wisdom in keeping the Sabbath so what's wrong with it, and what's wrong with choosing what to eat and drink? Well, I don't think Paul would necessarily say that those things are inherently wrong. What he was saying is they're wrong when they're being held up as necessary to do if you're going to please God. As markers of who is in and who is out, as ways to delineate those who are spiritual and close to God and those who are not, and they're unspiritual as markers of who keeps the law and who doesn't. So there were Jewish people in the first century, or Jewish background people in first century Colossae, and pagans. And clearly in, in, in that environment, both were saying, actually, we don't want to keep this, 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 and this. We don't think we need to. And they were clearly being condemned for doing that. Others in the church were saying, you should. You need to. Just like in... Um, Galatia. So the false teachers were saying it needs to be Jesus plus. Jesus plus this and plus that and plus the other. And Paul says, don't listen to that. All of it is merely shadow stuff. Shadows of a solid object. What matters is the solid object, not the shadow. And the solid object is Jesus. And that's what Colossians is all about. Keep the Sabbath if you want, but don't Create it as a law and don't tell people that other people they have to and condemn them if they don't. These are ways of organizing the Israelites' worshiping life, and all of it was actually an anticipation of and signpost towards ultimate fulfillment that was coming. And you can trace that stuff in the Old Testament and outside of the Old Testament as well. 
And we believe the ultimate fulfillment was Jesus, the hope of Jesus in us, the hope of glory. Because the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus, and because uh, you've come to him and been baptized, buried, and resurrected with him, you now live in freedom from all of those requirements. The shadows give way to the solid reality that is Jesus. And this is a really, 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 really big deal for Paul. In Galatians, he goes far as saying, those of you that will that listen to this false teaching and submit again to all these rules and regulations are actually enslaved. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery that's going to keep you enslaved to law-keeping. A works-based righteousness, a bunch of things you have to do and check off a box to please God and to be loved by Him. And it's such a big deal because any hint of that in our lives sends the message that we don't think Christ did enough. The cross was really, really good. It wasn't quite good enough because I still got to do all these things to make God love me. The gospel was good news, but it's not 100% good news because I still have to do this, this, and this if I'm going to be acceptable and, and, and loved by God. No. The cross is enough. The gospel is enough. You don't have to add to it. Yes, we want to live right, and there's a call to Christ-likeness and all those things, but that isn't a bunch of things we have to do to make God love us. It's the fact that we're loved and we're in a love relationship, and now we want to please Him by the way we live and engage in His mission. It's completely different. When Paul writes to one of those up-and-coming leaders named Timothy, he says a really, really fascinating thing. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, he says this, Now, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times, some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. I didn't know demons taught. Apparently, they do. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron, they forbid marriage, demand abstinence from foods which were created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's some connection here. Now, in 1 Timothy, it's talking about abstinence from food. It's more about asceticism, I think. It's a little bit different than what Paul's saying in Colossians, but it's in the same category in the sense that there was a bunch of things that they were being told they had to do in order to please God and to live a proper life in Him. And Paul says that's actually the teaching of demons. It's a bit weird, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, what I think we take from that is that false teaching, presumably some false teaching, maybe all false teaching, I'm not sure, as well as coming through broken, fallen humans who are maybe purposely trying to teach falsely, or maybe are just deceived as they teach falsely, as well as that, it has a dark spiritual background to it. And I don't think we think about that enough. There's a dark spiritual background to this kind of teaching. So says Paul in 1 Timothy. Often when we see horrendous things happen in our world, we see evil happening in our world, maybe we experience the actions of, of, of people doing evil, often it's from fall, or always, it's from fallen, broken human beings, though often it's demonically reinforced. 
What I mean by that is there is an evil force that is tempting humans to act a certain way, prompting them to perhaps justify their evil, luring them into sin, holding them in bondage, a superhuman force that works in and through and around humans, reinforcing, strengthening, and exploiting human sinfulness and creating strongholds of evil. I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like there are there's evil experiences from groups or organizations or businesses or industries or whatever it is that seem to have an oppressive collective force that is greater than the sum of its parts. Do you know what I mean by that? It seems like there is an oppressive force, a collective oppressive force that is more powerful than the sum of its parts. What I mean by that is, imagine the Nazi party or the Nazi army. If you were to take just a random Nazi soldier out of the army, you were to set them aside and and promise them that there's freedom, no one's going to hear what they say, chances are some of them would be fairly normal human beings, decent human beings who would say, you know, I I really don't think we should be doing this to what we're doing. And I'm fundamentally, but I have to because, you know, I'll be killed if I don't. There's probably a lot, the sum of the parts, the parts that weren't actually all that evil. Now, there definitely were some, for sure. But put them back into the Nazi party, and there's there's this collective identity, evil identity, that is greater than the sum of the parts. There's this kind of evil that pervades certain groups or governments or armies or organizations or structures or industry and so on. So I think it's biblical and real to say that false teaching can be inspired, supported, and strengthened by dark forces. And Paul has just said, why am, why am I talking about this? Why are we going to Timothy? Because in the last passage, Paul has just said, those powers have been disarmed. They've been disarmed at the cross. So live out your freedom in Jesus. And whatever you do, don't let anyone condemn you because you don't follow their false teaching. No need for shadows here. We have the solid object. The passage then says in verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement, worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up, and, and so on. There's a couple of things to say about this too. In many ways, uh, Paul is sort of repeating what he's just said. He's just said, don't let anyone condemn you for for these things. And then he says, and uh, and don't let anyone disqualify you because of these things. He's sort of saying the same thing. He's just sort of building on it. But here he mentions a couple of things. I don't have time to go into all of them. But one of them is the worship of angels. That's weird. People worshiping angels. So what does that mean? Well, Scholars aren't actually sure what it means. There's there's multiple different ways, and I'm going to mention three to you possible ways. Um, It might be that people were just worshiping angels, like it says. That's probably the simplest way to read it. They were literally bowing down and worshiping angels, and it breaks the first commandment, you should have no other gods before me, right? You're not supposed to worship anyone except God. So what might have been that they were actually worshiping angels, I don't know where you find one or see one or I don't, know, I don't know what they were doing but anyway could be um in revelation when john sees a vision of angels he wants to bow down and worship and the angel stops him and he says no no don't do this i'm a fellow uh, servant don't worship me worship god alone so it could have been that they were worshiping angels it could have been number two it could have been that they were actually attempting to join the worship of angels as well 
That could have been one of the options. Connected to this idea of being puffed up by visions. They could have been claiming to be so spiritual that in their visions and in their spiritual escapism, they were being caught up into the heavenlies and they were joining in the worship of the angels to God. And that's only really for us spiritual people, not for regular people. Hence Paul's statement, don't let them disqualify you based on their puffed up visions. It could have been that. So maybe why Paul talks about self-abasement, this kind of radical humility, this dynamic humility that they were claiming. And Paul essentially thinks that's a bogus humility. It's a false humility because in actual fact, in the very next breath, they're, being, they're puffing themselves up. So it isn't a particularly good humility. Or third, it could have been that they were joining with more pagan ideas that were present, pagan practices. There's evidence that in the ancient world, they had sort of a magic understanding of the world. Actually, you can trace it into the Middle Ages, medieval times as as well. This kind of medieval or or rather um, pagan idea of of calling on or trying to conjure up angelic beings or spiritual beings to give you success in business, to, to ward off a curse, to make a curse over your neighbor who you didn't like, or whatever it was. So it's more connected to a folk-like religious understanding. So it could have been that too. As you can tell, and as I said, there's scholarly debate on exactly what it means. It isn't really clear. It doesn't really matter to us doesn't really change anything. It's interesting, but it doesn't really matter that we know exactly what that was. Except to reinforce the idea that Paul is concerned with the infiltration of false teaching, both pagan and Jewish, into this fledgling, fledgling rather community of believers in Colossae. And he was writing to them to implore them to keep Christ at the center like a father. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone condemn you. Don't listen to that false teaching. Colossians is all about Christ in me, the hope of glory. There's a lot more in there we could talk about. We don't have time this morning, but that's that's okay. I think we, we get the general idea of what's going on here. For us today here in 2023, I think there's some important things for for you and I to consider about this. Uh, We have to be really, really careful that we don't create religious atmospheres in our churches that disqualify other people because they don't live, look, or act the same as us. And there's a long history of the church being very guilty of that. Now, the flip side of the coin, and there's always a flip side of the coin, is that we don't want to go so far where we pendulum swing over here that we create a space where we water down the message of Jesus because we want it to be open to everyone and we don't want to offend anyone by the message of Jesus. And there are denominations and churches that have done that. We, want to melt, we, we don't want to offend other people. We, we, we're okay with putting up, a, up with a body that sort of compromises the, you know, the truth that we once kind of held to. It's not that either. There are plenty of biblical truths and teachings that call us to challenge one another, to sharpen each other's face, to maintain and guard the truth, and and so on. So it's not that. It's just that we've often created communities where belonging is completely dependent upon belief and practice. And practice usually includes a whole bunch of things that we've made up 
that are usually cultural expectation and cultural things that we think are important, and we've added those. And so we criticize and condemn people that don't fit that mold, and it's really ugly. It's a really ugly part of being the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we've added, we've, we've created this kind of Jesus plus thing. What if instead, and I actually think that Seven Oaks does a pretty good job of this, so I'm not, this is a soft sort of application. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that we do really, really bad at this, but it's good for us to continue to hold before us in case there's something lurking in the heart. What if we created an atmosphere of radical hospitality where you can belong even before you believe? Now, if you want to belong to our congregation and journey with us, you have to know you're going to hear a lot of gospel. You're going to hear a lot about Jesus. We talk about him a lot. We kind of like him. And because we like him, we can't help but talk about him. And so if that's not acceptable, then maybe this isn't the place for you because we're going to talk about him. But you can be here, whether you believe or not. Whatever you think about Jesus, you can believe, you can be here. You're going to be encouraged to believe, however. You're going to be encouraged to be baptized and to pursue Christ-likeness and holiness, absolutely. But you'll also be offered grace because we all need it as well, because we're all a bunch of sinners in this room. So you can journey and be part of us and belong to us. Now, there's theological truth about understanding the family of God and being brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, there's that, absolutely. And there's some practical things about church in terms of if you want to become an official member, you have to sign up to what you believe and that you've been baptized and so on and all those kind of things. Yes, there's that stuff. Of course there's that stuff. But there's nothing that says that you can't be here and belong and be part of our worshiping community as you're trying to figure out what you actually believe. And we will love you, and we will pray with you, and we will embrace you, and we will call you our friends. That's the kind of radical hospitality that we need. And isn't that the way of Jesus? Because who did he spend a lot of his time with? The religious people didn't like it at all. The religious people of the day did not like it because they had the opposite of what I've just talked about. You have to do and act and believe and be before you can come anywhere near this community. So the question for us, is there anything lurking in our hearts that causes us to judge or disqualify or condemn others because they don't match up with our idea, idea of belief and lifestyle and practice and how we, how we do our lives. Or maybe we feel that we're so much more spiritual than other people, and if we're honest, we're a little bit puffed up with our own spirituality. If any of those things are true, even if there's a little trace of it, I just invite you to ask Jesus to come and reveal it to you and confess it to him and then receive his loving washing and cleansing and setting us on the right path so we can be a radically hospitable place. Like I said, I think we are, but we can be better. It's not by mistake that we are right in the center of Abbotsford. We want to love our town. We want to love our city. As the condominium buildings go up all over, the place, all over the place and new people move into this city, we want to be a place right in the middle that says, you can come and you can be here and we're going to love you and help you in your journey towards understanding truth. All right, we're going to go to communion. So if you haven't... Um, 
If you haven't got one of these, uh, it's not too late. There'll be some at the back there. Uh, there should be some up in the balcony too. You're just going to want to uh, take one of these. And as we prepare to celebrate communion, we're going to come to the table afresh, uh, approaching the object and not the shadow. Jesus is the real deal, and Colossians has that wonderful job of reminding us and calling us to that. Uh, so just, uh, if this is your first time, you just want to pull, pull away this uh, uh, see-through cellophane that will reveal this little cracker for you. Um, and then just be careful as you pull back the pink um, foil there that you don't get it all over yourself. I just want to read just a little bit uh, from Colossians last week. It says, um, When you were buried with him in baptism, you also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So as we go to the table today, we go with the cross front and center. We remember the cross and we commemorate and we enter into the reality of the death of Jesus for us. And it's only this and not a bunch of other things that make us right with God. It's only the cross. So all you who know him, uh, this represents the body of the Lord Jesus that was broken for you on the cross. So all you who know him, let's eat together. The juice signifies and represents and points to the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed for us at Calvary. So all you who know him, let's drink together. Lord Jesus, this morning we have joined with millions and millions and millions and millions of believers today and throughout history who have centered their worshiping life around the table of the Lord. And so as we've ingested these elements um, this morning, Lord, we've done it with faith, not as an empty gesture, but we've ingested them in faith. And as the, the wafer and the juice go down into our bodies, so also we believe it represents the fact that you, Jesus, are in us also, that you dwell deeply within us and we are in you. And that vital connection to the vine is what saves us, is what marks us for the day to come, that promises us that we are yours. And so we do so this morning with thanksgiving we thank you for the cross, Jesus. We thank you for your love that was poured out that day. We make it once again the center of our purview. And I pray that it would nourish us this week as we go into the world, living as the children of God, 
seeking to do so in a way that honors and worships you and points to you as we want to take a hold of that same zeal that the Apostle Paul had as he was a missionary to the Gentiles. We also want to proclaim your truth to those who who as yet do not have that vital connection to you and thus are withering. So Lord, sustain us and strengthen us in that task. In Jesus' name, amen.